Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. You know, on this program, we have talked about the problem of single-use uh, plastic, non-recyclable um, items for, for a long, long time. We've talked about, you know, the problem of, that they create in municipal uh, solid waste programs and landfills. Um, and California has done it again. They have just recently passed in this past legislative session, a law to address this issue that is very, very cutting edge. And I'm excited today to have a guest who can tell us exactly how this happened. We have Heidi Sanborn. She's the founding executive director of the National Stewardship Action Council. And uh, for all my Hamilton fans, you'll get the reference. She was in the room where it happened when this bill actually uh, got hammered out and negotiated. So uh, welcome back to Go Green Radio, Heidi. It is great to have you back in the house with us. Oh, it's great to be back, Jill. And it was great to see you down in San Diego at the CRA conference. It sure was. It sure was. I would love to have a. you start by explaining what this term extended producer responsibility, EPR, means. Because for some of our listeners, this might be the first ter- time they're hearing that term. And I think it's going to be really important to the rest of our conversation. Absolutely. So extended producer responsibility is the term that's been used around the world for the last 30 years to explain what a policy is where the producer of a product's responsibility is extended beyond the sale. So they are responsible for the full life cycle of their product, not just to follow laws to sell it, but to then get it back, manage it, etc. And that was, you know, a policy, as I said, widely used around the world, uh, but very late to come to the United States. Uh, But the international companies who sell around the world have been complying with EPR policies for decades. Interesting. Now, Heidi, I have to tell you that back in June, on June 17th, this was just a few days before the end of the California legislative session. I interviewed Jay Ziegler from the National uh, or the Nature Conservancy about a ballot initiative that was ready to drop. And it would have allowed California voters to act on single-use plastics. But by June 30th, the ballot initiative was no longer necessary because SB 54 was passed and signed. And as I mentioned, you were in the room where it happened, and I'd love for you to tell us how that was accomplished. Well, Jay was a key part of it and the Nature Conservancy. Um, There were 25 or so of us in the room hammering this bill out for the last seven months uh, before the June 30 midnight deadline when they'd have to pull the ballot measure and they being the three people who signed their names to putting it on the ballot. I was not part of that group. Uh, Those three people um, had to be convinced that this bill was good enough to be equal or better to the ballot measure in order to pull it. And there was a lot of debate as to, you know, all the details because there's so many details. When you talk about packaging, you've got so many manufacturers and so many stakeholders that it was, it, it was hard to corral the cat. But <laughs> I can say I love the process because we had real meetings 
uh, chaired by Tina Andalina, who was the staffer to Senator Ben Allen, where we had the Cal Chamber. We had California Manufacturers and Technology Association. We even had the American Chemistry Council in the room. We had uh, biodegradable products, the, the um, recycling partnership, and, and the League of Cities, the Association of Counties, the Association of Rural Counties, many, and others, and then five of us on the environmental side, myself, who's the expert in extended producer responsibility policy, uh, Oceana, Ocean Conservancy, Monterey Bay Aquarium, and again, the Nature Conservancy. And we all work to hear each other out and come to agreements. We hammered out every word. It was very tough. There were many, many times we didn't think we could get there, but we all came to this table with a willing spirit to get to yes and make sure it was going to work because that's one of my conditions of working on a bill. It has to be possible and it has to work. Mm-hmm. And this, this table worked and we all fought for the bill and we were very lucky to get it. In fact, literally everything happened in the last 24 hours before midnight. <laughs> we had uh, a vote in the assembly that was almost unanimous uh, the night before. And then in the morning, the Senate voted uh, 29 to zero. And then it went to the governor's desk at 10, 10. And then we were waiting for the three signatories to the ballot measure to pull the ballot. They finally oh, did at gosh. four. The last signature was received and the governor signed the bill by five. So it was quite a nail biting experience. I hope somebody does a movie about it. <laughs> no kidding, because what what an amazing story of public policy success. I mean, we are just not seeing, you know, th- this play out very often. You know, what we're seeing more often than not is conflict that doesn't get resolved. And this is a case study in 2022 uh, you know, that that it can still be done. So congratulations. Now, I really want you to uh, walk us through the provisions of SB 54. What exactly is going to change in California as a result of this legislation? Well, it was built on the legislation of the year prior where I was a co-sponsor of Senator Allen's SB 343, which you'll also see the results of as a consumer That'll help you make better purchasing decisions, and that built, uh, 54 built on it, so I want to start there. So the first bill, SB 343, was about how do you use the chasing arrows? We've done studies that show the public believes those chasing arrows mean that something's recyclable, but it actually does not. And so we are telling manufacturers by July 1 of 2025, they cannot put a chasing arrow on anything that does not hit at least 60% recycling rate. Generally, I could go into greater detail, but I won't. So that's the first thing, because message has to be clear to the consumer on what to buy and how to, you know, if something is recyclable and should go in the blue bin, number one. You'll see that those changes coming, so you won't, will feel more confident about your choices and what to do with these products. But the bill then builds off of that and says, okay, producers of packaging, if you sell into California... We're going to give you some parameters on what you have to do in order to keep selling your package into California. And here's some basics. The first is that all packaging must be compostable or recyclable, meeting our definition, by 2032. There are interim goals on that. The, um, there, this is a multiple material bill. 
unlike the ballot measure, which was very focused on plastics for a lot of good reasons, this bill focuses on source reduction of plastics and says we must have source reduction, 25% with source reduction of plastics by weight and by unit by 2032. But the interim goal is 10% by 2027 and 20% by 2030. We also have a first in the nation requirement for reuse and refill that producers must go and switch their platform to 2% reuse and refill by 2027 and 4% by 2030. And we have recycling rates and dates, meaning there's hard numbers they have to, to do hit, which is not less than 30% by 2028 recyclability, 40% by 2030, and 65% by 2032. In addition, um, they have other parameters they have to meet. For example, polystyrene, which was banned in the ballot measure, is what I call a de facto ban in this this bill. I don't see how they're going to hit a 25% recycling rate by 2025, but that's a mandate. If they don't hit it, they don't get to sell in California anymore. There's wow. many more, but those are the yeah. big ones. <laughs> and, and those are big ones. You know, and sometimes when people hear about legislation like this, their knee-jerk reaction is, oh, great, sounds like a tax increase for working families. But that's not true in this case. And so I want you to talk to us about how the provisions of SB 54 will be funded. Well, this is what gets to the root of the issue. Companies have been selling literally whatever they want material-wise, you know, whether it's durable, refillable, recyclable, calling it whatever they want for decades. And that's how we got to where we are. They've externalized the cost of the end of life to the public, the environment, and local governments who are tasked with protecting public health and safety and managing waste. That's why bills are going up. I chaired the statewide commission on recycling markets and curbside recycling for two years. And our recommendations started with first get things that blow up and start our trash on fire out of the way. That's important. Stop the fires first. But the second was you got to have truthful labeling because the public is buying all the wrong stuff and being lied to. And then they do what they think is right with it, like put it in the recycling bin. And then we have to spend all this time and money sorting it out which adds a ton of costs. So we're trying to write the system from the get-go and make the producers pay for that full life cycle cost because when they do, they have to answer to shareholders about those costs. Then they look at design. Otherwise, it's mostly a marketing decision. And marketers don't know anything about our recycling system or how it works. Mm -hmm. So they make designs and colors of bottles. For example, they'll color their bottle green. Well, that just added a color that we can't use as, as nobody wants green as much as they want clear. And so you've ended up developing something that's not really marketable. Um, so those are all in the definition of recyclability. Two is getting out those dyes and contaminants and colors and things that are contaminating the system and making it more expensive. Um, but yeah, that's where we are with, with uh, there's so many, there's so much that happened in the last two years. I don't even know if we can cover it in the next hour, <laughs> but that's I know. a good sign because we got a lot done. 
Well, exactly. I know. And and I do want you to take just a minute to talk to us about the producer responsibility organization that was formed with SB 54 and the oversight that will ensure that it, it functions as it's supposed to. Well, this is very important to me because you do not want to have the producers like, you know, there's many, many big companies, Procter & Gamble, Clorox, you know, Unilever, um, and they're international conglomerates. They're very big. So you don't want them to have so much power over the system that they run over the existing infrastructure that's been put in place over decades by the waste haulers and the local governments and all the others, the recyclers, etc. You want to have a balance of power and checks and balances. So there's lots of things in SB 54 that helped us do that, including transparency setting up the PRO to be for public benefit, which is a 501c3 under IRS tax-exempt rules. They have to, if they don't operate for public benefit, we gave CalRecycle, the overseeing agency, the ability to remove control of the program from the PRO, the producer-run organization. Uh, And the the producer-run organization, there will only be one. It has to be seated, I believe, by 2027 and uh, set up, and uh, there will only be one for the first seven years. On the eighth year, companies could separate from that uh, organization if CalRecycle approves it. The reason we did that is the cost of infrastructure development is huge, and we did not know how it would possibly work if we had multiple competing producer-run organizations early on. Mm-hmm. Heidi, we're going to take a quick break, but uh, I know there's probably more that we need to cover on that. We'll do that right after this quick commercial break. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26 percent? 43 percent? Or 14%. Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're 
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you joined us today. If you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Heidi Sanborn. She is the founding executive director for the National Stewardship Action Council. We were just talking about the work that she was involved in to pass a new piece of California legislation, SB 54, which deals with single-use plastics. And I'm just thrilled to death that we got to to tell that story on Go Green Radio. Heidi, I want to give you a chance to talk to our listeners about your organization and the role that you play in legislation like we just discussed. Tell us about the National Stewardship Action Council and the work you do. Well, we are a 501c4 nonprofit under IRS rules, meaning that we're tax exempt for the benefit of uh, us and the public, and we can advocate under those rules, so we can lobby. And so what we do is we look, I consider ourselves uh, the leading catalyst for circular economy legislation in the nation. In fact, I should have said that SB 54 is the only bill in the nation and maybe the world that I've seen that does all three um, parts of a circular economy. It reduces waste and pollution at the source. It keeps materials in motion, which is recycling and composting. And then it's regenerating natural systems. SB 54 actually provides that the manufacturers pay $500 million a year California for 10 years. That's $5 billion to clean up plastic pollution around the state. And I've never seen a bill do that before. So we were very, very proud of that effort. Um, And again, the ballot measure was incredibly helpful at getting that. But what we do is we try to thread the needle. I look for things that are cutting edge, that are best in class, that have learned the lessons of previous bills in other countries, other states, and other nations, um, and really doing what's best for California first. And because we're 12% of the market, then take it national. So we've got our first national bill based on a California bill introduced this year that's bipartisan, and it's a truth in labeling law on flushable wipes, which are not flushable. <laughs> and so we negotiated with Kimberly Clark and Procter & Gamble. They've all agreed they're taking the words flushable off, and they're replacing it with do not flush and a, a, a moniker that says that. So, um, wow. That's actually that, huge, Heidi, because, I mean, that those things have clogged up <laughs> plumbing systems and, you know, uh, and, and sewer tanks and all that for years. So that, that's actually pretty huge. It, it, it's enormous. And it's a bipartisan bill. Um, and this is what I want to do is I want to partner with leading companies that want to lead and get the right bill done in California and then make it national because we can go national faster when 12% of the market has already moved and we've got an agreement. And I'm excited to say, say, I won't get into the details, but we've already had very large international companies come to us about legislation next year to try to, you know, thread that needle, not just do something, but do something that will work and be meaningful and can pass. 
And we right. find and that we'll have the best opportunity to pass when you've got unlikely bedfellows as sponsors. <laughs> like, I love the way you said that. NGOs, yeah, yeah, and the company. Well, I want to give our listeners a chance to hear about some of the other legislative successes that you had this year besides SB 54 so that they get more of a flavor of some of the things that you're involved with. Um, I'd love for you to talk to us about AB 1793, um, the Aquatic Toxicity Testing Bill. Talk to us about that one. Yeah, these are the kinds of niche bills that people don't understand the importance of, um, but you know, this bill was basically to help retailers who are taking back, for example, cosmetics from the public that aren't going to be used, that were labeled cruelty-free because they didn't want to support animal testing. But when they got returned, the way the California law was written, the current rules, I should say, from the Department of Toxic Substances Control said, you must assume that they're hazardous if they haven't been tested on animals. Then they were having to spend millions to dispose of them as hazardous waste, which often means they're burned. So we wanted to reduce incineration. Those plants are not in rich neighborhoods. And uh, the people exposed to those fumes are usually disadvantaged people. And so we wanted to also provide for retailers an option to reuse those products and donate them. So it could be shampoo. It could be all kinds of things. So that bill is um, very, you know, niche but very important, and we hope DTSC will allow math to be uh, how they determine whether something is toxic by knowing what's in the product versus mm-hmm. testing it on live fish, and mm. which is costly, time-consuming, and silly. So uh, we're excited about that law. That is pretty cool. And, and I, I know that yeah. you also were involved in AB 1894, the Cannabis Vape Labeling for Proper Disposal Act, um, and I'd love to hear more about that, Heidi. Well, as you know, cannabis is a new and uh, very expanding, quickly expanding industry. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it wasn't going as green as we would have liked. So we were very uh, happy to work with the cannabis industry and the manufacturers, Dizzy and others, that worked with us to pass this law, which says a, a cannabis vaping product cannot be labeled as disposable or advertised as disposable because that implies it can go in the trash. They cannot go in the trash. It's a controlled substance. It's got a battery and it's an electronic. Now, the good news is there was another bill that passed this year on batteries that is also requiring a take back program for the cannabis vapes, but um, because they have an embedded battery and they're an electronic, but they also now cannot be labeled as disposable and must say that they are hazardous waste. So we're delighted to work with the industry on that. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. Um, Talk to us as well about AB 2208. This has to do with fluorescent lamps. Um, and, and actually, I, I didn't know much about it until I hopped on your website. So talk to our listeners about that. Yeah, so if you recall, a few years ago, there was a big kerfuffle about the banning of incandescent lamps because they were so energy inefficient and people were moving to fluorescent lamps. But what a lot of people don't understand is fluorescent lamps have mercury. They cannot operate without mercury. Mercury is a highly potent neurotoxin. And when those thin glass lamps break, it volatizes, meaning it goes airborne. And then you breathe it, it goes into your body, and it's extremely difficult to get out. It affects brain, nervous system, everything. So we want 
those to go away as quickly as possible. And this bill um, will push us when uh, it's got a ban, 2024 sales ban on fluorescent lamps, the compacts, and 2025 for the long tubes up to eight feet. And that's very, very important. It's setting the bar high for the rest of the nation. Um, and then moving people to LEDs because LEDs yeah. don't have mercury. They are at par with cost now. And they're also, they're widely available and they use uh, half the energy and last twice as long. So they really mm-hmm. do save people money. Well, and you know that my nonprofit, the Go Green Initiative, works with K-12 schools across the country. And I have seen what schools have to do to properly dispose of fluorescent lamps. And it's ugly, especially in parts of the country where, uh, you know, weather is, you know, not like it is in California. And these fluorescent lamps have to be stored in such a way that the you know, that they can be properly disposed, you know, and, and, and perhaps the dumpster area is going to get rained and snowed on and all this. It's just, it's a mess. So I hope that this makes its way across the country. Um, I'd like for you to give us the lowdown on AB 661, uh, the Bennett bill on recycling materials. Talk to us about that. Well, this was actually a bill idea I had in the recycling commission and I'm very pleased that um, Assemblymember Bennett picked it up and then passed it. So what it does is it actually changes the uh, state agency buy recycled campaign, which means like the state of California buys a lot of stuff and they mm-hmm. vote with the public dollars. And what we wanted them to do is vote well. <laughs> so <laughs> they now have to really spend a lot more time thinking about recycled product standards and contracts with their vendors to make sure that more categories of, of products are covered and they have higher recycled content, they're more recyclable, but we didn't want the state, for example, to keep buying fluorescent lamps when mm-hmm. LEDs are on the market. That's undermining the bill we just passed. So, and it's costing the state of California a lot of money in hazardous waste disposal, which we don't mm-hmm. need with LEDs. So mm-hmm. that's, that's the kind of thing where we're trying to get the state to walk the talk and we're delighted that bill passed as well. Can you, I want to, I want to ask a follow on question to that because, you know, when we're talking about public dollars, a lot of people, you know, get testy about that. Is there a, a significant cost increase for the state to comply with this law? Or do you expect that because it's creating a larger demand for these items that the costs will come down? What's your thought on the, the cost to implement this piece of legislation? I'm really glad you brought this up because the way I answer the question always is this. There's more cost than money. Mm-hmm. People focus on the, the upfront cost without looking at the life cycle cost. Mm-hmm. What are the public health impacts of mercury exposure? They're very high. Yeah. What are the public health impacts of microplastics in the water? We have no idea yet, but mm-hmm. we know that they're there and it's going to grow. What are, so we've externalized all of these costs are not in the price of the product. And we don't truly, in my opinion, have a free market until everything is labeled correctly, you know if it's toxic or not, um, you know if it's recyclable or not, and we have closed-loop systems where whole life cycle cost is in the product price. 
because mm-hmm. people are voting with their dollars. For example, on the mercury lighting, if the true cost of recycling a lamp had been in the product price and the manufacturers had to pay to take back that mercury, do you think they've been on the market this long? Not a chance. No, that's well said, Not Heidi. And I think that's absolutely um, the, the lens through which we need to be looking at these issues. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but we have so much more to talk about with Heidi Sandburn. Born, so don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. We're talking about extended producer responsibility. We're talking about a circular economy. We're talking about an organization that helps make that happen, and that's the National Stewardship Action Council. And we're, we have their founding executive director, Heidi Sanborn, on with us today. And I'm so glad you could be on with us. Heidi, what do you have in store for the 2022-23 California legislative cycle? Well, I typically don't tip our hands uh, too soon. <laughs> I let the legislators be the ones to make the announcements. But I can tell you there's a few things that were started last year that we're going to continue with and um, and things that were discussed last year. So one of my favorites is adding aerosol paint cans to the Paint Care Take Back Stewardship Program, the producer-run paint recycling program here in California and 10 other states uh, nine other states have it now so that we're excited to add aerosol cans because they're littered and used in tagging and other things. So that's mm-hmm. exciting. Uh, they also are explosive because they're under pressure. Yep. Um, we've been talking a lot about single use plastics 
And that is, I've got some ideas on that. We've been talking about ink cartridges in that space. So that's something we're talking about. Um, the carpet program still is not working the way I'd like it because it was one of the first programs put into place and the industry just got their fourth sign and sent to enforcement wow. for the fourth time. And that to me is you get to get the keys taken away because you can't seem to run the program correctly. So mm-hmm. I'm going to probably work on that very diligently because I don't like to leave things hanging out there. If they're not working, let's fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another thing that I really want to get to is the root issue of household hazardous waste. Again, to me, when you're exposing the public to hazardous waste, not everybody's a scientist, not everybody reads directions, not everybody speaks the same language in the directions that are written mm-hmm. in. And so we have misapplication, mismanagement. We even have diazinon, you know, uh, containers, highly toxic labeled as with the chasing arrow that we discussed earlier and saying, rinse it out and then put it in your recycling bin. Well, plastics oh. absorb chemicals. And I worry that that's contaminating our recycling stream. And I really think we need a lot more rules and regulations and screening around household hazardous waste in general. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at a bigger fix where things are not put on the market unless they're clearly labeled. They have an end of life program that's closed loop, especially for these most toxic products. And that would really save it for the volume that they are of the waste stream. They consume a lot of resources that we could use for composting and other things. Mm -hmm. Uh, So those are some of the ideas. And then at the national level, um, we're also looking at a national bottle bill. We're one of only 10 states that has that. And we really need those materials back to make the next generation of bottles and cans. Uh, The wipes legislation we want to see through. So we're labeling those correctly and not flushable. Um, so there's, there's lots of opportunities. Uh, and there's more ideas too. We started a bill this year on banning, um, uh, filters on cigarettes. That's the most littered plastic in the world. <sighs> and because they're on fire, people throw them on the ground, smash them into the ground, microplastics run off. Um, and the tobacco industry has been completely, uh, out to lunch on this issue and doing nothing to help. So uh, I'm very unhappy with the tobacco industry and hope that they will stop fighting and start working on a solution to the filter problem. Heidi, I'm going to say what I know everybody's thinking. Thank God for Heidi Sanborn. <laughs> I mean, you are out there <laughs> battling for us, and and I am just so thankful for you. I know that you guys are active in other states besides California. You mentioned a federal, uh, you know, national bottle bill, but uh, what are some of the things that you have going on in other states, and and anything else at the federal level you want to discuss? Um. Well, you know, I first of all want to say that what I do is really, really hard. I don't have children and and I fight for everybody else's children. I'm really concerned about the next generation and what we're leaving them. And I can just see in my lifetime from being born in 1963, our population's gone from 3 billion. It'll be 8 billion next month, more than doubled in one human lifetime. And the amount of resources we are consuming and the damage we are doing to our environment is just breathtaking. And so I just urge everyone to find a group, if, if it's mine, great, I need the money, but find another group, do something, advocate for someone, plug in, 
because we are losing too much too fast and it's not fair to the children coming up. And I, so I'd urge you to join us or join, as I said, another group that you believe in um, and fight for people who are running for office who will do these things and help us because it's, it's, it's much harder fight than it should be. And the public voice is being drowned out by corporate donations. And that really concerns me um, for the environment. So well said, uh, Heidi. And and yeah. again, if anybody's wondering why this woman is one of my sheroes, there you go. <laughs> Drop the mic. <laughs> I, I love the vision statement that you guys have for the National Stewardship Action um, Council. It, it reads as following. The United States attains a circular and equitable economy. Now, Heidi, I've got to tell you, we've got a lot of college students who listen to the show. And honestly, these concepts of a circular and equitable economy might be new to them. So I'd love for you to tell us what it would look like if we achieved this vision. How would the United States be different than it is today if we attained a circular and equitable economy? It would be almost unrecognizable, really, because we wouldn't have people in communities completely disproportionately impacted by pollution which affects their health. Uh, We would have clean air. We wouldn't have to go to jobs that make us sick. There are jobs out there. I mean, I've walked into different plants and I couldn't stand breathing the air for 30 minutes and got a headache. I have no idea how some of those people were in there for eight hours a day. We have to get the toxics out of our system first. The true circular and equitable economy starts with reducing waste and toxics and pollution at the source, turning the spigot off. When the bathtub is overflowing, you don't start mopping up first. You turn the spigot off, and that's what we have to do first. Once we've accomplished that, then we size the infrastructure properly around what is absolutely necessary, and then we go clean up the mess that we just caused. That's, and then we do it with equity always at top of mind. So that that's really what it is. That's what I'll continue to fight for. But our current economic system has not been equitable at all in any way. And that is fundamental to this being sustainable in this country is having, because right now we're just seeing the haves and the have nots. It's getting worse. And uh, like I said, I've never seen a plastics plant <laughs> cited in a rich neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's a whole discussion that we love to have on Go Green Radio is, you know, centered on environmental justice and where all of the, the parts and pieces that create the things that we haphazardly purchase and use are manufactured and processed. And um, yeah, that's that's uh, huge. That's huge. Now, mm-hmm. I know that you play a role on the California Statewide Commission on Recycling Markets and Curbside Recycling. Talk to us about what that body does and specifically what your role is. I think it's what my role was. So I was appointed along with 17 other people by Cal EPA to that commission, which was set up in law. And we were given very specific tasks, including, you know, giving advice to the legislature and Cal Recycle on what can we do to increase recycling markets? What can we do to reduce contamination in the loads that was impacting our ability to market, sell recyclables? 
define what is recyclable and define what is compostable, and then advise them on public education. I put my hat in the ring to become chair, and I was elected chair by my fellow commissioners for the first two years. And as again, as a nonprofit, I just did not have the bandwidth. I was volunteer. Um, I, I did it for two years. I spent enormous amounts of time and capital, and I didn't spend time fundraising for my organization to try and help the state of California, but I couldn't do it anymore. There was literally not a penny provided to us and not even enough support. I mean, we were doing our own reports and everything, and I finally said, I just can't afford to do this anymore. But I loved doing it. We were incredibly impactful, um, but I did resign as of July 1st, and they haven't met since. So I suspect they'll reconvene probably in January. Um, we did achieve all the goals that we had set out to. Um, we did pass AB 1201 on defining what's compostable. We did pass, uh, not we as the commission, individual commissioners worked on it, but the commission did give advice as a whole on what should be in the bill. We did do that for recyclable and compostable. We did give advice on contamination. A lot of it has been taken up by the legislature and passed, so that's great. Um, and we've given advice on the public education. So we put out 34 recommendations of policy that had, when one member resigned, it ended up 16-0 votes. Wow. And that is wow. very unusual. Yeah. <laughs> and I was very yeah, proud is. to chair the group to those conclusions. Well, thank you for your service on that. And actually, I want to let our listeners know, if you want to see what happens at a meeting like that and see Heidi in action, some of the, the videos of those meetings are up on the, the website, and their website is nsacaction, or it's nsaction.us, nsaction.us, and you can check those out. Um, Heidi, I think it's so important, you and I agree on this, for people who are involved in waste reduction and recycling to be able to link their efforts to combating climate change. Um, how do you talk about your work in the context of climate change? Well, again, thank you for bringing that up because I've said all along, you can't talk about climate change or ocean litter if you don't talk about waste management. They're all combined. In fact, a scientist who did the report for the EPA about 12 years ago on the impacts of different industries on climate when he took the same data that he had used to come up with the pie chart that most of it was coming from the energy sector from the straight back end emissions and recalculated it to the purchasing of products and what was driving those, the production and the transportation and everything else, most of it was products. And so you can't talk about these things separately. They are all very connected. Um, and I've sit in the, I've joined the California Foundation for the Environment and the Economy Board. I started a study trip called the Recycling Challenge with several others, including our state treasurer, Fiona Ma, who I just gave a Circular Economy Champion Award to because she's cared about this issue long before others have that high in, in government. And we take legislators on study trips and policymakers and show them how it works in other countries. And we even met with the West Coast Collaborative of all three of our states on the West Coast and BC government officials to work on climate change and ocean litter and now waste management. So I've tied this all together for people. Mm -hmm. They're finally getting it, but uh, it was long overdue. 
It is. Yeah. And and I love exactly how you explained it. We need more, more, more. Folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have more with Heidi Sanborn. So don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you're with us today. We've been talking with Heidi Sanborn, the founding executive director of the National Stewardship Action Council. And Heidi, I know that your organization's work takes funding. And I want to give you a chance to talk to us about the benefits of donating to your organization and how the organization puts that money to good use. Well, we are desperate really for more money. I mean, I'm getting requests from all over the country and even North America to help uh, share what we've learned and how to pass these really hard bills. Um, but we, do, we need more funding. So if you believe in what we do, you can contribute online. We've got a donate button right there on our website. Um, we've also got a 501c3 nonprofit, which governments can give to and others, and that's focusing on the education side of the work. Uh, while the lobbying side is under the C4. So if people believe in this, you have to vote with your dollars and donate to groups like mine because it's extremely difficult to raise money when you're getting things done. I've learned that the far left and the far right are what gets the most money. And, you know, I I don't want to, you know, saber rattle and make things uh, sound worse than they are or better than they are. I want people to have the truth and to get really good bills and really good policy passed the proper way with everybody at the table. And that is not as compelling to some to, to fund because it's very niche. So if you're interested mm-hmm. in what we do, uh, please, please donate and become a member. We've got weekly newsletters, we have webinars, and we'd love to have your support. <laughs> 
You bet. You bet. And I also wanted to ask, can other organizations partner with the National Stewardship Action Council? How, how does that work? Absolutely. We'd love to partner. In fact, there's grants and a lot of federal grants and state grants coming. And with the C3 organization, the Stewardship Action Foundation, we can partner on projects and we do implementation work. I've been in this business 32 years and I started as a consultant. So, you know, as long as it aligns with our mission that we have the tax exemption for, I can do the work. And we are working with several jurisdictions right now on contracts to do work to help with local uh, policy development, some stakeholder meetings with companies to bring ideas together on how to solve data issues with tech. Um, and so there's, there's all kinds of opportunities to partner. And if you're interested, just email me, Heidi at nsaction.us. That sounds great, Heidi, and I, I hope you get a lot of takers because your work is so important. Um, and, and like you said, I mean, for those of us who care about the future of our, our nation and our world, not just for ourselves, but for future generations, what you're doing, um, I have a feeling people will be talking about you in 100 years, and, and they will realize your value um, many, many generations from now. So I, I hope you get a lot of takers on that. Heidi, I, I want to ask you a kind of a personal question because you've been able to succeed in influencing public policy and most importantly, public policy makers uh, when so many others have failed. Um, and I would love for you to give us a little bit of insight into your secret sauce. Um, what do you feel like you bring to the table that makes you so effective in your advocacy? I think it's because I've really taken heed from the losses and learned that just talking and understanding what motivates others. So if I'm at the negotiating table with a company that's a C corporation, not a B corporation that has to care about people and planet, I know that their motivation is money. And if I can't make the money work for them, then it's, it doesn't matter what I say. I've also learned that lobbyists don't always represent their clients well. They represent themselves well. Not everyone. There's very good lobbyists, and I have one. But some of them really do not share. Like when I offer, let's partner with your company, they go back and say, oh, we've got to fight them. They're dangerous. They're, you know, they're going to hurt your business. And then they get a lot of money to fight when we were offering an olive branch. So what I've learned is always follow the money. If you can't understand a behavior, then look at where the money's coming from. I've seen it on the ENGO side as much as I've seen it on the corporate side and the lobbying side. Um, I've learned that you just have to see things for what they are. I've sometimes had more problems on the environmental side than I've had with the um, industry side much to my original surprise. I'm not surprised anymore. It's partly because industry is very predictable, whereas and ENGOs are not. And some of them are fighting over the same dollars. And so, um, unfortunately, it's fiefdom, it's ego, it's other things. It's not always the environment that's ruling decision-making, which I found very disappointing, but true. So um, be very careful in vetting who you donate your money to. Look at their successes don't look at what they just say. Look at actually what they've done. Um, and because past behavior is the biggest predictor of future behavior. 
I think there's something more and you're, you're being very modest, but you have a way of working with people that is pleasing. You're very serious. You're very smart. Um, you're, you, uh, you know, you take no prisoners, but you are not bombastic and combative, you know, in instances where you could be making friends with people to get to solutions, which I find personally very refreshing. And, and I would love to have you just talk a little bit about the, the personal piece of the work that you do. Hmm. Well, my approach is speak the truth always, keep it simple, but don't exaggerate and don't pretend to be something you're not. And don't assume the worst of others. Try to find, try to be a really good active listener. Find out what their motivations are and see if you can thread the needle and find common ground. I really, really try to bring people together who, I I consider this my greatest challenge in life. How do I bring people together who are not on the same page? Where are the commonalities? And that's how we got the commission to do what, what they did. Um, it's always operate out of respect. I will not tolerate disrespect to me or to anyone else in my presence. We cannot dissolve into an unruly um, mob when we are trying to negotiate bills or work on legislation. We have to hold the bar high. I come from USC's public policy school. I have a master's in public administration. I totally believe in government doing the work of proper work of government, but we have to hold people accountable for behavior and ethics that are much higher than what we're seeing now. And I want to set the example and be the example for others that we can do this hard work. We can thread the needle. We can bring people together and government can work. And we showed that with SB 54. Heidi, somebody needs to etch that in stone. That was so well said. In the minute that we have left, I would like for you to give some advice to some of our young folks out there who get discouraged with how long it could take sometimes to see change happen. What words of advice do you have for them? Um, I also agree, and I get discouraged when I see how long it takes. But what I know is if I don't fight, and we don't all stand up and push, it's going to take even longer. And I'm going to work to get the right people in office so that we can get the gears greased and make it move faster because the climate is out of time and we don't have time to waste anymore. So that's one of the reasons when people were asking me why I was supporting 54 over the ballot measure. As soon as 54 passed, we have packaging companies that were called the next day to say, How do we change our packaging to make sure we can continue to sell in California? Mm -hmm. It changed in Mm -hmm. 24 hours. If we had waited for the ballot, we we may not have gotten it passed. And it was just more hundreds of millions of dollars of fighting and commercials. I wasn't ready to wait that time. We need to move and we need to move fast. And then if we didn't get it perfect, we fix it again and we keep moving. But we cannot stall anymore. We're out of time. That's right. That's right. Thank you, Heidi. Don't quit. Thank you, Heidi. Well said. Thank you for being on the show. And thank you to all of our listeners who tuned in today. We are going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.